0: So Genesis chapter 32, we'll start at verse 3. And Jacob sent messengers before him to Esau, his brother, in the land of Seir, the country of Edom, instructing them, thus you shall say to my lord Esau, thus says your servant Jacob, I have sojourned with Laban and stayed until now. I have oxen, donkey, uh, donkeys, flocks, male servants and female servants. I have sent to tell my lord in order that I may fi- find favor in your sight. The messengers returned to Jacob, saying, We came to your brother Esau, and he is coming to meet you, and there are 400 men with him. Then Jacob was greatly afraid and distressed. He divided the people who were with him and the flocks and herds and camels into two camps, thinking, If Esau comes to the one camp and attacks it, then the camp that is left will escape. And Jacob said, O God of my father Abraham and God of my father Isaac, O Lord, who said to me, Return to your country and to your kindred, that I may do you good. I am not worthy of the least of all these deeds of steadfast love and all the faithfulness that you have shown to your servant. For with only my staff I crossed this Jordan, and now I have become two camps. Please deliver me from the hand of my brother, from the hand of Esau, for I fear him, that he may come and attack me, the mothers with the children. But you said, I surely will do you good. And make your offspring as the sand of the sea, which cannot be numbered from altitude. So he stayed there that night, and from what he had with him, he took a present for his brother Esau, 200 female goats and 20 male goats, 200 ewes and 20 rams, 30 milking camels and their calves, 40 cows and 10 bulls, 20 female donkeys and 10 male donkeys. These he handed over to his servants. Every drove by itself and said to his servants, Pass on ahead of me. And put a space between drove and drove. He instructed the first, when Esau, my brother, meets you and asks you, to whom do you belong, where are you going, and whose are these ahead of you, then you shall say, they belong to your servant Jacob. They are a present sent to my lord Esau. And moreover, he is behind us. He likewise instructed the second and the third and all who followed the droves, you shall say the same thing to Esau when you find him. And you shall say, moreover, your servant Jacob is behind us. For he thought, I may appease him with the present that goes ahead of me, and afterward I shall see his face. Perhaps he will accept me. So the present passed on ahead of him, and he himself stayed that night in the camp. The same night he arose and took his two wives, his two female servants and his eleven children, and crossed the fort of the Jabbok. He took them and sent them across the stream and everything else that he had. And Jacob was left alone, and a man wrestled with him, And it prevailed. Then Jacob asked him, Please tell me your name. But he said, Why is it that you asked? Him? And there he blessed him. So Jacob called the name of the place Peniel, saying, For I have seen God face to face, and yet my life has been delivered. The sun rose upon him as he passed. He passed Peniel, limping because of his hip. Therefore, to this day, the people of Israel do not eat the sinew of the thigh that is on the hip socket because he touched the the socket of Jacob's hip on the sinew. Okay, so remember where we are now in the Jacob story. Jacob has just left Laban, and he's headed towards his homeland. And he sends messengers to Esau to tell him that they were coming and to try to find favor with him. And remember, Esau would have... we would think he would be angry at Jacob because Jacob had taken advantage of him and stolen his birthright and his blessing. And so these messengers come to Jacob and they tell Jacob that Esau is coming to him and he's headed there with 400 men. And Jacob is terrified because of this. It says in verse 6 that he's greatly afraid and distressed and he's kind of in desperation mode. He divides all of his people and his flocks into two separate camps, because he figured, well, if Esau attacks one of these camps, then at least one of these camps could escape. He's desperate. And then he comes up with another idea. He decides, uh, maybe I'll try to appease Esau. So he sends Esau some gifts, some goats, some sheep, some other animals to try to appease him. And he cries out to God for deliverance, asking God to rescue him from the hand of his brother. But after this, he sends his two wives, his children, uh, ahead of him, and he sends them across the, J- the stream of Jabok, And he himself stays on the other side. We don't know exactly why he does this. The reformer Martin Luther suggested that maybe he wanted to spend some time with God, to spend some time alone praying. We don't know that for sure, but I think that's a good guess. And then we come upon one of the most mysterious episodes in all of Scripture. And this this passage has many different interpretations that people have given. I'm going to present my best effort at understanding this passage for us today and how we can apply it to our lives. But I'd encourage you to look at this passage for yourself to, no pun intended, wrestle with the text because as Protestant believers, we believe in what's called the priesthood of all believers. And what that means is that all of us, no matter who we are, have direct access to God as believers. We can pray to God and we can hear God's speaking through his word. And so we don't need uh, an intermediary. We don't need to come to a priest or pastor in order to speak to God or for to hear from God. And so I'd encourage you today as always to look at the scripture to see if what I'm saying is in line with God's word and to apply that truth to your hearts. And if it is God's word, then ask yourself the question, how am I going to respond to that today? So Jacob is uh, by himself on the other side of the Jabbok and a man appears to him and starts wrestling with him for uh, what appears to be an extended amount of time. Now first we need to kind of deal with who was this man. Many people believe this this was God himself, and I think there's good reason to believe that. Jacob calls the place Peniel, which means face of God, and so he uh, believed that he had seen God face to face, and so this might have been even a pre-incarnate appearance of jesus christ in the flesh we know that this person seemed to display uh, great power when he dislocated jacob's hip we know that from the length of this wrestling it seems like this was not a lethal flight fight see if, if you were say in a bad area of town and somebody came up upon you and attacked you what you do is just you would turn around and you would start punching and start kicking, you know, trying to poke him in the eye, do anything that you could to get away, and it wouldn't be long before either that person was hurt or you were in some way hurt or subdued. But that's not what happens in this passage. It seems like this wrestling match goes on for quite some time without major injuries to either party, which to me indicates that the, that Jacob knew that this was some kind of a If he didn't know it it was God at the beginning, he knew it was somebody who had divine power. So if this person is God, who's wrestling with Jacob, we have some questions that we need to wrestle with ourselves. Because it's interesting that in this story, it seems like God is losing the battle. It says in the text that when the man saw that he was not prevailing against Jacob, he touched or struck Jacob's hip. And when he did, the man says, let me go for the day is broken. And Jacob says, I'm not going to let you go unless you bless me. This passage is hard for us to wrap our minds around because it seems like God is losing and it seems like Jacob is forcing God's hand. So how do we make sense of this passage and the story? Well, I think to understand this, I think we need to look at it from maybe a little different perspective and maybe from a parenting perspective. One of the most common activities that parents, and more often fathers and mothers, uh, do with their children is to roughhouse or wrestle. And when they do this, there's usually a lot of laughter and a lot of fun, um, and you know parents love to do this with their children. Children love it, but researchers have found that this is not just a fun activity, but that this is developmentally important for a child's development. They've suggested that this helps children regulate their emotions and how they deal with their uh, emotions in relationship to their bodily actions. And they've even suggested, some have suggested, that those who have parents who wrestled with them or roughhoused with them have less developmental problems later in life than those who had parents who didn't roughhouse or wrestle with them. According to an ABC News article, the researchers believe that the most important aspect of this play is that it gives children a sense of achievement when they defeat a more powerful adult, building their self-confidence and concentration. However, fathers who resist their children can also teach them the life lesson that in life you don't always win. The act of a stronger adult holding back that strength also helps to build trust between father and child. And I think this is a helpful framework for understanding what is going on in this passage. Because God, the all-powerful God who made the heavens and the earth, couldn't really be defeated by Jacob in a wrestling match. But he's willingly limiting himself, willingly allowing Jacob to prevail against him to prove a point. To show Jacob something. So what is God trying to do? What is he trying to show Jacob in this story? Now, remember the context. Esau's about to face, or Jacob's about to face the biggest challenge of his life. He's about to face Esau, the wrath of his brother, whom he deceived, whom he took uh, his birthright and his blessing. And this is terrifying for Jacob as 400 men are headed towards him, and he thinks they're going to kill his whole family. And so he's terrified of Esau, and he thinks that his biggest foe in this story is Esau, but he's not fighting with Esau in this story. He's fighting with God himself. See, for Jacob, the most important question, the prominent question in his mind was this Is Esau going to kill me, and is Esau going to kill my family? That was what was going through his mind. That was the thing that registered with him. But that wasn't the most important question that Jacob needed to answer. The question that he needed to answer was, is God going to come through with his promises? Is God going to be faithful to me? Because Jacob was told that God would be with him, that he wouldn't let him down, that he would bring him back to his homeland. And so Jacob is wrestling with the fact of is God going to come through because it looks like a big army is coming and they're going to kill, he's going to kill my whole family. And so he's asking himself the question, is God going to really come through? That's the most important question that he needed to answer. Esau was just one possible threat to God's covenant promise. And I remember a little bit about the character of Jacob. Now Jacob, we see the account of his birth in Genesis chapter 25. And we see right from his birth, he's described as being Jacob, which means kind of a heel grabber or a supplanter. When he comes out of the room, he's holding on to his brother's heel, and so he's called the supplanter or the heel grabber. In other words, that he would always be trying to overtake the person ahead of him. And so we see that he lives up to his name throughout his story. Even Esau says it in the one passage, is it not right that he's called Jacob? The supplanter. And so we, we see first that he steals the birthright. We see that Esau is out in the field and he's tired and he comes in and is hungry. And Jacob says, I'll give you this nice red stew if you give me your birthright. So he steals his birthright, then he deceives his father. And then after that he flees. He goes to Laban and he's he's not a able to stand up to Laban, so he kind of gives in to all of his, Laban's demands. He just kind of goes with the flow. And then when he gets his opportunities, he's able to increase his wealth kind of in a roundabout way. But he's never one to face confrontation head on. He's never one to stand up for something. You see, when Esau was angry with him, he fled. When, he, when there was a chance of Laban keeping him or detaining him, he fled when, he was, when Laban was off shearing sheep. He was never one to face things head on. He's described in Genesis chapter 5 as being a peaceful or quiet man, a man who lived in the tents. He was kind of a mama's boy, so to speak, in opposed to Esau, who was kind of a man's man, a hunter, a gatherer. And so Jacob is the usurper, the deceiver the heel grabber, and he's constantly grasping for the person in front of him and always doing it through deceitful means. But here he is facing God face to face. He doesn't have anything to hold on to anymore. He doesn't have any schemes. He has nothing in his hands. All he's doing is wrestling in hand-to-hand combat with God himself. And even though he's winning, this battle could be potentially going on for hours. And even when his hip is dislocated, he keeps holding on. He keeps fighting. And he says, I'm not going to let you go unless you bless me. What is God doing here? Why does God wrestle with Jacob? I think God is perhaps asking Jacob the question, are you going to fight? Are you going to fight? I know that Esau is coming with 400 men, and I know that's terrifying, but are you going to believe in my promises, and are you going to fight for that blessing that I've given you? Do you believe in those promises so much, and so do you hold them so tightly that you're not going to let them go? And Jacob holds on to those promises, and he fights. He demands that this man bless him. And this man does not initially do that. He asks this man to bless him, and initially what he does is he changes his name, which indicates a change in his identity. See, this man says, well, what is your name? And he responds, my name is Jacob. I am the usurper. I am the deceiver. I am the heel grabber, and I've demonstrated that throughout my whole life. I mean, you think about this story, and Jacob probably felt a bunch of guilt at this point. I mean, because he deserves everything that he's about to get. And he says, I'm Jacob. I'm the deceiver. But God says to him, you're no longer going to be called Jacob. You're going to be called Israel. You're going to be called Israel, which means God strives, or to strive with God. He says, because you have strived with God and with man and have prevailed. The Hebrew word for strive can also be translated as to persist, to exert oneself or persevere. You have persevered with God and with man and you have prevailed. Now how could this be a good thing? How would it be a good thing that he strived with God, that he persevered with God? It could be a good thing because he was holding on firmly to God's will and God's promises. And that in this process, it seemed like he learned the importance of God's blessing. That no matter what happened with Esau, the most important thing in his life was that he had the blessing of God. And if he had that blessing, nothing else mattered. And so he holds on to it and will not let it let this man go until he receives the blessing. Now remember, God is not Jacob's foe. He's not trying to bring Jacob down. He's trying to test him. And like a father wrestling with his child, he limits himself to demonstrate something to him. And God asks him, are you going to fight? You don't need to fight with Esau. You need to get right with me. You need to really do business with me and understand if you're going to trust me. Are you going to believe that my promises are enough for you? Or are you going to focus on your schemes and your deceit? Jacob says, I want that. I want your blessing. But lest he be puffed up after enduring with God himself, lest he be puffed up, he's left with something He's left a changed man, a new name, a new identity, but he's also left with a limp. And he's about to face the biggest challenge of his life, walking with a limp, injured, to face 400 men and the wrath of his brother. But none of it even matters because he has the blessing of God in his life. And I think through this process, God strengthened Jacob. And gave him the strength that he needed to ultimately face his brother. See, sometimes a little testing can produce in us a lot of strength. A little testing in us can produce for us a lot of strength. I think Jacob's wrestling with God is similar to wrestling that has occurred in a number of other places in Scripture. I think it's similar to the wrestling that maybe occurred when Abraham was forced to sacrifice his son Isaac. Abraham had waited for many years to have a child and God promised that he would have the child and that he would become a great nation, that all the nations of the world would be blessed through him. And finally he has that child and then God offers God commands him to offer that child up as a sacrifice. And as he's walking up Mount Moriah, he was probably doing a lot of wrestling with God. God, you said that you're going to bless me you said you're going to make me a great nation i waited all this time and here i am and i'm about to destroy that promise that you made to me and i imagine there was a lot of wrestling with god but abraham came to a point where he believed god and in hebrews it says that he believed god so much that he believed that even if isaac died that god had the power to raise him up from the grave We know that God provided a sacrifice to take Isaac's place. And we know that through that process, God strengthened Abraham. That God reconfirmed His promises to Abraham. And God strengthened his faith. Because a little testing can sometimes produce a lot of strength in our lives. But it's not just in the Old Testament. We see the same principle in the New Testament. In James chapter 1 Apostle James says this, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. The testing of your faith produces steadfastness, or endurance, or perseverance. Testing produces strength. When we're going through a difficult time, usually what we're looking for is some encouragement, right? I and mean, that's what we're looking for. We're looking for maybe God to speak some soft word of encouragement to us. Or we're looking for Him to intervene in our lives in a miraculous way. And sometimes He does that and that's great. But sometimes He tests us. And when He tests us, it ends up making us stronger than if He would have just encouraged us or intervened on our behalf. Sometimes when people are exercising, they have workout buddies or a kind of accountability partners that will kind of encourage them and keep them on, on track when they're working out. And researchers did this study, and they took 800 different people, and they were involved in various activities like yoga or cycling, running, weight training, and they grouped them into different groups. Some of those people were grouped into groups where Uh, It was kind of based upon camaraderie and encouragement. It was just encouragement groups, basically. The other groups that they put them in were groups that were uh, challenging groups, where they would compete against one another to see who would achieve their goals faster or whatnot. And what they found was that both were effective. Those who were in the encouraging group, they had more motivation in achieving their goals. But not half as much... As those who were challenged, who those were who were in the competition group, the author of the study said this: As people were influ- influenced by, as people were influenced by their neighbors to exercise more, it created a social riche where everyone increased everyone else's activity levels. See through the challenges that God gives us, sometimes those challenges is, are used to strengthen us. And gives us this gift of perseverance that maybe couldn't be achieved by just simply a word of encouragement or God intervening in a miraculous way. And so he brings challenges in our life sometimes to challenge us to make us stronger. To increase our faith. I mean sometimes we walk through life and we feel like we're supposed to just kind of float through life. You know as believers in Jesus, you know sometimes we have this idea that we're kind of just to let go and let God. Whatever God wants to happen, we'll just let it happen. We're just kind of to float along through life. But I don't think that's exactly the kind of faith that God is calling us to. There's an element of truth to that. But I think the faith that God is calling us to is courageous faith. Faith that takes hold of the promises of God. That even in the midst of difficulty, we hold on to what God has said. A faith that persists in prayer. A faith that never gives up. Jesus told a parable about persistence in prayer in Luke chapter 18. Luke chapter 18, it says, And He told them a parable to the effect that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. He said, In a certain city there was a judge who neither feared God nor respected man. And there was a widow in that city who kept coming to Him and saying, Give me justice against my adversary. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will He find faith on the earth. God is calling us to unrelenting persistence in prayer and in our faith. And sometimes God allows those difficulties to come in our life. Sometimes He allows prayers to go unanswered. And sometimes He does that to challenge us. And sometimes maybe we feel like God is wrestling with us and We feel like God is asking us the question, are you going to give up or are you going to keep fighting? Are you going to hold on to what you know is true or are you going to give up? Now that's the same question that Satan asks us. Satan comes to us and he asks us the same question. He says, are you going to give up? And he says, yeah, this is why you should give up. This is why you should give up. See, God comes to us and he asks us the same question and he says, this is how you're going to succeed. This is how you're going to persevere. And he gives us the strength that we need to keep going. He says, are you going to give up or are you going to keep going? And God says, I'm going to give you the strength to keep going, to keep fighting. John Calvin, a great theologian, said this, who is able to stand against an antagonist at whose breath alone all flesh perishes and vanishes away? at whose look the mountains melt, at whose word or back the whole world is shaken to pieces. And therefore to attempt the least contest with him would be insane temerity. But it is easy to untie the knot. For we did not fight against him except by his own power, with his own weapons. For he, having challenged us to this context, at the same time furnishes us with the means of resistance, so that he both fights against us and for us. In, such, in short, such is his apportioning of it, of it is conflict, that while he assails us with one hand, he defends us with the other. Yea, inasmuch as he supplies us with more strength to resist than he employs in imposing us, we may truly and properly say that he fights against us with his left hand and for us with his right hand. For while he lightly opposes us, He supplies us invincible strength whereby we overcome. He poses us with his left hand, but he strengthens us with his right hand. Because remember the context, he's a good father who cares about us, who loves us, and he's doing us not to challenge us to bring us down, but he's doing this so that we would be strengthened, that we would walk away with stronger faith and a deeper faith and love in him poses us with his left hand he defends us with his right hand when i was a little kid my dad and i used to wrestle quite often and of course he was much stronger than i was and i remember sometimes he would uh, have me pinned down on the ground and he'd be tickling me or whatnot and he'd say to me do you give in other words do you give up and he'd say if you give if you say you give then i'll let you go now and sometimes I'd say, okay, 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 I give. But sometimes when he said that, I would be like, no. And I'd clench my fists. And, you know, I would muster up all the strength that I had to try to get away from him. And even though he could just hold me down easily, sometimes he would let me go. And sometimes, even though he was you know, a lot bigger than me, a lot stronger than me, weighed a lot more than I did, I would jump on top of him and I'd grab his big arms and hold him down to the ground and he would say, alright, alright, you got me. I give. Let me go. And he tells me, I don't remember this, but he tells me that after that I would laugh and I would laugh and I would just think it was the greatest thing in the world that I was able to hold down my dad who was so much bigger than I was. And through that, I was made stronger. And God does the same thing with us. He brings challenges into our lives. He tests us to make us stronger so that we would be able to face the challenges in our life. Sometimes a little testing can produce a lot of strength. Many of us, maybe, we feel today like God is wrestling with us. Maybe we feel like God is challenging our faith. If that's the case, don't forget first to fight, to never give up, to keep going. But also don't forget that though he might test us, he upholds us with his right hand. Though he might test us and though he might challenge us, though he might be wrestling with us, he gives us the strength and the power to overcome no matter what we face in our lives today. Sometimes a little testing can produce a lot of strength. Let's pray. God, we thank you for this day. We thank you for your love for us. We thank you that you are a good Father who cares for us deeply. We thank you for the encouragement that you bring into our life. We thank you that, for the times in our lives when you work in our lives in a miraculous way in providing for our needs. But we're also thankful for the times in our lives where we face trials, where we face challenges, where we face testing, Because we know that through those things, you work all things for good. We know that through those things, you are trying to form us more and more into your image and make us into the people that you want us to be. God, I pray that we as a people would be people of courageous faith. That we would never give up. That we would never let go of the promises that you've made to us. And that we would keep fighting, keep striving for those things, even when we face difficulty and trials in our life. God, I pray that we would use the trials that we face in our life and use them for our benefit. That even though they're not pleasant, even though they hurt, that we would use them to grow stronger and use them to grow closer to you. And God, we thank you that though you may oppose us with your left hand, Your right hand upholds us. That only through your power and through your strength can we overcome. In Christ's name I pray. Mm. Amen.